morning, everyone. Um, yes, it's good to be. It's good to be with you all. Uh, thanks, Tim and Elaine and Morney for leading us so far. Um, really helpful reminders of who it is we're worshiping this morning. So thank you. Um, I wonder what comes to your mind if I were to ask you what is it that you tolerate. What is it that you tolerate? And then if I were to ask you the follow-up question, is it good that you tolerate that? I wonder what your answer would be. Well, obviously, it depends on what it is you're tolerating, isn't it? Say if it's uh, an annoying habit of a co-worker, it's probably quite good that you tolerate that. You're showing forbearance with that person. So tolerance can be a good thing, but tolerance can also be a bad thing. Just ask someone who is lactose intolerant, intolerant who tolerates a load of cheese in their life. So tolerance can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, but it can also be an incredibly dangerous thing. So it can be good, it can be bad, but it can be incredibly dangerous. And that is the theme of the letter that Jesus writes this morning, the letter uh, to the church in Thyatira that we are going to look at. We've been working our way through the seven letters or messages, whatever you want to call them, to the churches uh, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so this morning we're in the letter to uh, the church in Thyatira, and the theme is all about the dangerous uh, nature of tolerance. So if you turn uh, with me to Revelation chapter 2, um, we're going to read from verse 18 through to verse uh, 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's just come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you that it teaches us and rebukes us and corrects us and trains us in righteousness. And thank you that you speak through it. And we ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, speak to us this morning. And that each of us might have an ear to hear what you would say to us this morning. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come to this letter, and the introduction, you may notice, follows a similar pattern to the letters that we've already been considering. Um, it, it's introduced uh, by Jesus introducing himself. The author of this letter introduces himself to the church in Thyatira. But I wonder if you've noticed over the last couple of weeks that Jesus doesn't introduce himself in the same way to each church. You see, he, he draws on the vision that John sees in chapter one, the vision that we saw, that glorious picture of what the risen Christ looks like. And in each of the letters, Jesus takes one of, or a couple of these specific attributes and um, communicates them to specific churches. And so to the church in Thyatira, he says, these are the words of the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You see, each, each of these parts pertain specifically to the context of the church in Thyatira. Jesus chooses his words purposefully here. He's trying to communicate something about himself to the church in Thyatira about who he is and what he's like. So let's consider how he introduces himself. First of all, these are the words of the Son of God. But we're quite familiar with that term. I would imagine if I would ask you this morning, who is Jesus? One of the first things you might say is the Son of God. It's certainly fresh in our minds after having spent time in Mark's gospel. And Mark introduces his gospel. As we know, um, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But this term is not as common in the book of Revelation. In fact, this is the only time in this book that that term is used uh, to describe Jesus. Why, why is that? Well, we don't know very much about Thyatira. We certainly don't know as much about Thyatira as we do about Ephesus or Pergamum, for example. But we do know that the primary deity that was worshipped in Thyatira was Apollo. And Apollo was the son of Zeus. And so Jesus introduced himself here in Thyatira as the son of God. Now, if you were to ask the people around, the culture around the church, who is the son of God? They would say it's Apollo, the son of Zeus, the son of God. But here Jesus says to his church, these are the words of the son of God, the only son of the only God. Next, he says, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Why does Jesus choose these specific features uh, to communicate what he's like to the church in Thyatira? Well, see, both of these things speak to the idea of judgment. Jesus' eyes being like a flame of fire or like blazing fire speak to his being all-seeing. He explicitly communicates this later on in the letter. If you scan down um, to verse... Um, Verse 23, I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus' eyes being like flames of fire communicates that he searches and he sees. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He searches the heart and minds of men. And it might be, um, and so secondly, his feet are like burnished bronze. What is this, what is Jesus trying to communicate um, with this? Well, this is another thing that is communicating the judgment of Jesus. It communicates that one day Jesus' enemies will be crushed under his feet. 
And it might be that Jesus includes this particular description to the church in Thyatira, because another thing we know about Thyatira, um, and just as an aside, you may be thinking, where have I heard Thyatira before? Well, as Tim mentioned, we spent time in Philippians not too long ago, and in that series we met Lydia. Um, Lydia was one of the founding members of the church in Philippi. And we read in Acts 16 that Lydia was from Thyatira. And she was a dealer of purple cloth. And this was one of the main trades in Thyatira, the production of this fine material. And Thyatira, we know, was quite an important city for trade. But one of the other trades alongside this uh, production of fine uh, material was that of bronze smithing. And so as Jesus communicates to the church here, I am the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. That imagery would not have been lost on the church in Thyatira. They would have known the strength and the beauty of bronze, burnished bronze. They would have understood the connotations of having feet like burnished bronze. So who is Jesus? Who does he introduce himself here? The divine son of God who sees all and will judge accordingly. That is who is writing this letter and that is an image that we would do well to keep in mind as we go through the rest of this letter. Then Jesus comes to talk about what he knows about the church and this is what a pattern that he has we've seen in letters previously in the chapter and um, Jesus commends the church for what he knows about them. Look at verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. It's a pretty, as far as these commendations go, it's a pretty good one. There's lots to commend here. Five things there Jesus commends. And all of these things are kind of fundamental markers of the Christian's life. They contain elements of the fruit of the Spirit, love and faithfulness. They're serving one another. They're charitable. They're persevering in this. And then Jesus is saying, and you're doing more than you did at first. Your love is increasing and Jesus commends this. And I think if we were to visit a church like this today, we would look around and think this is a pretty healthy church. You'd say the people here really seem to love one another. They seem to have a real trust in the Lord for their protection and their provision. People are serving in different ways. They're using their gifts for the glory of God. They're upholding and supporting those going through difficult times. And then maybe you visit in a couple of months' time and you realize... They love one another even more than they did back then. They're serving more. There's more people using their gifts, serving, and so on. And I think by and large, this church themselves would have thought themselves a pretty healthy church. If you'll indulge me, imagine a staff meeting on a Tuesday morning at this church. Another great Sunday, says the pastor. More people are volunteering to be on rutas. We have even more than we need. People are being more generous. The giving has increased. The poor in our fellowship are being looked after. Nobody's in wants. Things are going well. But Jesus, with his eyes like blazing fire, sees past these things. And while he commends these things, and, and it's important that we see that he does commend them, and he doesn't want that to stop. In fact, you'll notice that he commends this church for doing exactly what he rebukes the church in Ephesus for not doing. Do you remember the church in Ephesus a few weeks ago had forgotten their first love? They they were told to remember from where they're fallen. But here in Thyatira, they're commended for their love and actually their love is increasing. And Jesus commends this. But he sees the ugliness that lurks within the church here. And he has this against them. 
Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food, sacrificed to idols. Now, um, this is, there's so much in this verse um, that we need to unpack. And so we're going to spend a fair bit of time in this verse and then we'll go through the rest of the letter at a quicker pace. But we're going to camp out here for a little while because uh, there's lots that we need to see. And we're going to start off by looking at this character, Jezebel. Who, who is this? Well, Jesus is not referring to a specific person in the congregation whose name is Jezebel. But in the same way that last week, as we thought about in Pergamum, where Jesus uses an Old Testament story to communicate something, he now likens someone in the congregation in Thyatira, a real person, to the historical Old Testament figure of Jezebel to express his concern over what is going on in his church. And we read that this Thyatiran Jezebel is using her self-given spiritual authority to mislead or seduce believers into immorality and idolatry. But why does Jesus refer to this person as Jezebel? Who was Jezebel? Um, those of you who know the book of First Kings well will know all about Jezebel. Um, even those of you maybe who, who don't know that, you'll maybe know that there are negative connotations around that name Jezebel. Um, and for good reason, because Jezebel, we meet in First Kings, was the wife of King Ahab, the king of Israel. And she was a worshipper of Baal. She had the Lord's prophets killed so that Elijah was the only one left. And after that amazing scene that you'll remember on Mount Carmel, when, he, when God proved that he alone is God, answering Elijah's prayer, Jezebel tried to have Elijah killed. But I think Jezebel can be summed up in one verse. First Kings chapter 21 verse 25 says this. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife. That sounds like the Thyatiran Jezebel, doesn't it? Who misleads or seduces God's people into evil in the same way that the Old Testament Jezebel misled her husband into the king of Israel into more and more evil and do you see what it says there in verse 20 that she calls herself a prophetess a prophet or a prophetess is someone who God specifically reveals things to and so and then they have the responsibility then to communicate that message and so Jezebel is hiding behind and using this title within the church to give herself authority to teach to mislead and to seduce the believers. And do you see how she does that? Look again at verse 20. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So Jezebel has some sort of opportunity here within the church to teach. And people are listening. And this type of false teaching, and make no mistake, this is false teaching. And what does false teaching do? Well, it makes... Righteousness looks strange and makes sin look normal or even good. False teaching makes righteousness look strange and it makes sin look normal or even good. The ESB says that she is teaching and seducing my servants. This is what a false teacher does. You'll know the story of Little Red Riding Hood. She goes to visit her 
grandmother and en route she encounters a wolf and the wolf asks her where she is going and so she responds and the wolf the wolf suggests that she would go and pick up some flowers for her grandmother um, and while uh, little red riding hood is deterred the wolf goes on gets to granny's house swallows her up whole and why, then when uh, Little Red Riding Hood arrives, she notices some peculiar things about her granny. What a deep voice you have. What a big mouth you have. And so and we, I mean, we, I'm sure we could do a bit of back and forth here, but we're not, uh, we're not going to. But Little Red Riding Hood falls prey to the wolf and she is swallowed up. And Jesus said that this is what false teachers are like. They're wolves in disguise. And how are they disguised? As Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, as sheep, harmless, meek, just another one of us, sheep. And so they're hard to spot. And this was the case in Thyatira. Jezebel was disguised, a wolf disguised as a prophetess. Someone who God had apparently revealed things to. And she was teaching, teaching deep things, things that you wouldn't uh, hear in a normal Bible study or Bible teaching. If you look down to verse um, 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who, uh, who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. That is what Jezebel was teaching, Satan's so-called deep secrets. And just like Little Red Riding Hood, just as Little Red Riding Hood soon found herself in serious danger at the hands of the wolf, People in the church were soon getting into serious trouble as a result of being misled and embracing the teaching of Jezebel. Now, I wonder um, how often you would say you're on the lookout for false teaching or false teachers. You may not think that there's much danger, uh, danger of it around here in Gilmahirk. And whether or not that is the case, that does not mean that we should be constantly on the lookout for false teachers. However, within the world of the internet, wolves roam free. My friend leads a, a youth group at his church in Waringstown, uh, and a couple of months ago, he asked me to go down and to speak at it. Um, and after the talk, I was speaking to one of the one of the teenagers who was there, this guy, and he came up to me and he he asked me a series of questions, and we had really good um, discussion. But normally, he would introduce his questions like this: I saw this thing on TikTok, and then proceeded to ask me my opinion on some sort of wacky interpretation of the end times that he had seen in this video. And while you may be thinking I may, that example might be not as serious, might not be as harmful, we need to recognize that there are people who love to, under the disguise of some sort of spiritual authority, post videos um, where they are justifying things that God specifically forbids in his word. And they're trying to justify it, making it look normal or even good. Remember, that's what false teachers do. And you see, this is exactly what was happening in Thyatira. Jezebel was leading people to uh, do things that God had specifically forbidden in his word. And what are the two issues that she mentions? Uh, if you look down again to verse 20, into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. These were two things that were clearly issues that were clearly addressed in the life of the early church. In Acts 15, uh, the Council of Jerusalem, um, a group of uh, elders and apostles um, met because there were a bunch of people who were saying that 
um, in order for the Gentiles to turn to God, they would have to obey the full law of Moses. But the council were saying, no, a person is saved um, not by obeying the law, but by Christ alone. And so they decided that it, they should not make it more difficult for the Gentiles to turn to God. And so they wrote a letter to the Gentile churches saying, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, um, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Really clear, isn't it? This is what you are to abstain from. They're clearly forbidden by the Holy Spirit and by the early church leaders. And then Paul in Corinth uh, clearly uh, forbids this issue again. If you listen just to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A wife has his father's, a man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Paul says sexual immorality has no place within the church at all. And then in chapter 8, he goes on to talk about food sacrifice to idols. Um, he says that um, uh, the, this issue of eating food sacrificed to idols was leading those within the church in Corinth with weaker consciences to defile themselves. Again, he exercises, people are to exercise caution with this. But we have to recognize that this is what false teaching does. It, it says that what scripture forbids is okay. It makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal or even good. False teachers... Um, well, as best they can, ignore what Scripture says. And if they can't do that, then they'll distort it to make it seem like it is okay. This is exactly what Jezebel was doing. You're free in Christ to enjoy total sexual freedom. Yeah, there's a festival with food sacrifice to idols. Yeah, go ahead, eat, eat up. That's absolutely fine. It won't damage your relationship with Christ at all. It's fine. This is what she was doing. So to recap, there is someone in the church in Thyatira resembling the Jezebel of the Old Testament that is misleading the believers into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. But that is not the point of this letter. I wonder if you noticed that in chapter 20. See, this letter is not addressed to Jezebel to tell her to stop. This letter is addressed to the church as a whole. And what does Jesus say at the beginning of verse 20? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. We thought about tolerance at the, at the beginning, the good, the bad, and the dangerous. Well, this tolerance is supremely dangerous. Tolerating teaching that neglects what the Bible says and therefore makes righteousness look strange, sin look normal or even good, is just downright dangerous. And Jesus spells it out for us how this is dangerous and shows it, shows it how it is dangerous and who it is dangerous for. It's dangerous for the false teacher. It's dangerous for those who follow her and it's dangerous for all of us. We'll look at each of these things in turn just briefly. Verse 21, look at verse 21 with me. I have given her time, that is Jezebel, to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. See, the unrepentant Jezebel is to be cast upon a bed of suffering or a sickbed, according to the ESV. And so it seems as though Jesus is saying here that he will cause her to suffer physically. 
for her continuous misleading of God's people. But we know that this suffering will pale in comparison to what will be the fate of false teachers on the day of judgment. Jesus himself told us this this in Matthew 7. Famous words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, away from me, I never knew you, you evildoers. There's danger for the false teacher. There's danger for her followers. Look at verse 22 and into verse 23. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. These ways of, these phrases that Jesus used, those who commit adultery with her and who the children here will be struck dead, they're not to be taken literally. They are, um, Jesus uses them both to describe those who have come away from God's word and who have embraced Jezebel, embraced the false teaching of Jezebel. And Jesus says that these people will be made to suffer intensely or even struck dead if they do not repent. And here we see the corporate danger of false teaching. You see, for us, if we pretend that false teaching doesn't exist or we turn a blind eye to it, whether it's online or even in here, the risk is that those within our church will start to embrace things that the Bible forbids. In Thyatira, under the nose of the church, amidst all the good that was going on, remember all that was happening, uh, all that Jesus commanded them for, this is what was happening. People, false teaching was being tolerated and so people were being led astray. And so Jesus warns us that when false teaching is tolerated, this is what happens. People are led astray, but not only that, they are therefore then liable to Jesus' judgment if they don't repent. And so, yeah, it's important for us to watch out for false teachers for ourselves, but for the sake of our brothers and sisters also. So if we know of a brother or sister who has begun to embrace embrace teaching from a so-called pastor or Bible teacher that justifies sex outside of marriage, that justifies same-sex relationships, we must lovingly warn them of what the Bible teaches and the judgment that then they will be in danger of. Jesus makes no illusion, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. This is serious. There is danger. Juan Sanchez says in his book, Seven Dangers Facing Your Church, Jesus wants us to realize that it is better for unrepentant sinners to fall under the discipline of brothers and sisters now than to fall under the judgment of the returning Christ. And that's, that's hard. That is hard to do. Those are hard conversations to have. But look at what's at stake if we don't. There's danger for, our, or for those who embrace false teaching. But finally, there's danger for us all. You may be thinking, okay, false teachers are real. They're dangerous. I need to watch out for my sake, for the sake of my brothers and sisters. But as of right now, I am okay. I, don't, I haven't embraced any false teaching, not that I know of anyway. But look at verse 23. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. 
Remember who it is that is speaking here. This is the one whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, the one who sees all and will judge accordingly. We sing sometimes, um, you search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. Well, the Lord Jesus this morning looks into each of our hearts. And what does he see? Maybe you have been tolerating sin in your life. Maybe you haven't been active in putting it to death and therefore have been passive tolerating it. Instead of repenting, turning away from it and coming to Christ. And there is danger for all of us who tolerate. I will repay each of you, each of you, according to your deeds. But if you feel that piercing and holy gaze of Jesus this morning, there is hope. There is hope because this same Jesus, with eyes like blazing fire, with feet like burnished bronze, is the Jesus whose eyes were wet with tears as he prayed in Gethsemane, yet not what I will, but what you will, and whose feet were pierced with nails as he was crucified. And he went to the cross to take the punishment that our sins deserve. Leslie reminded us on Wednesday night that he was condemned so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what is the hope that we can escape the punishment of Jesus the judge because he himself was punished for our transgressions? Repent therefore. Repent and turn to Jesus because he is merciful. Do you see that in the text? Verse 22. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent. Jesus is merciful. He calls us to repent. Maybe you noticed that I didn't quite finish the story of Little Red Riding Hood earlier on. We left it with Granny and Little Red Riding Hood swallowed up in the belly of the beast. Well... Enter the huntsman. He comes and he cuts open the beast and frees Granny and Little Red Riding Hood, killing the wolf in the process. And this is a picture of what Christ does for those who repent. Little Red Riding Hood was tolerant of the wolf, disguised as her grandmother, and ended up in perilous danger. And those who tolerate the sinful ways of the false teacher in their own lives are too in danger. We see that in verse 22. But to those who repent, acknowledge their sin, forsake the false teaching that they have embraced. Christ will rescue. He will restore and he will bring them safely home. And so please repent. That is application number one. But there's another application. Jesus makes it clear that there are some in Thyatira who are tolerant of Jezebel and of sin, but others who are not. Do you see that in verse 24? Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. And what is the application for these people? Verse 25, only hold on to what you have until I come. I will not impose any other burden on you, says Jesus, only hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus says, you have come to me, hold on to me, 
and don't let go. Hold on to me and my teaching until I come. And what does this look like here and now? It looks like living our lives according to this. This is sufficient. This is true. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is how we steer clear of embracing false teaching. This is how we keep ourselves from the danger of tolerating it. And what's the motivation for all this? Finally, let's look at the reward. As Jesus has often given this pattern in the letters, he finishes with an amazing promise. Verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. See, this is the first part of the reward that Jesus talks about. He quotes from Psalm 2 here. And in this prophetic Psalm, um, look at what the father says to the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of your earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is the father speaking to Jesus, his son. And now Jesus says, as I received authority from my father, so I will give authority to you. I will give authority to you. We struggle to get our heads around this promise, don't we? What, what, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let me put it this way. Think about Joseph. All right, Je Joseph of Genesis. He was sold as a slave to Egypt and put in prison. But God elevated him to the amazing position of prime minister over all of Egypt. And we, when we think about Joseph, we think, wow, look what God did for Joseph. Amazing. And it is amazing. But this promise for the one who overcomes is that we who were once in a prison as well, the prison of our sin, controlled by the slave master of sin, will one day be given authority over the nations in Jesus' kingdom. We can't be sure exactly what this looks like, but what we do know is this. It'll be far more glorious than we can imagine, but in far more than we deserve. This is an incredible promise. Although that isn't even the best part. Look at the end, verse 28. I will also give him the morning star. What does that mean? I mean, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But what does it, what does it mean? Well, listen to chapter 22 and verse 16 of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of, G of David and the bright morning star. I am the bright morning star, Jesus said. And so what is he saying here? He says, I will give him the morning star. Or in other words, I will give the one to the one who overcomes myself. I will give you myself. How beautiful is that? There is no greater reward for the saint who has turned away from sin and trusted in Christ by faith than Christ himself. He, is, he himself is the reward. And just a glimpse in Revelation that we see of what this might look like is in chapter 7. Verse 16, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat, beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the reward for overcoming. So church, let us not tolerate false teaching 
or any sin in our lives because the risen Christ sees all and will judge accordingly. Rather, let us hold on to what we've been given, hold on to Christ himself. And by God's grace, we will overcome to receive our reward, Christ himself. Isn't that beautiful? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. And we recognize that your son is glorious. We see that we ought to fear him. We ought to love him and we ought to obey him. God, would you help us to do this? Help us to uh, live in the fear of the Lord as we know that you see all and you will judge accordingly. But we thank you for Jesus who rescues us from the coming judgment, who rescues us from our going astray. Grant us, Lord, repentance once again. May we turn back to you and trust in Jesus. Give us endurance, Lord, and give us eyes to see the reward that is ahead of us at the end of the race. Help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.